Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It's my pleasure to be joined by Alan Horowitz. He's one of the authors of a really excellent book called The Loss of Sadness. And uh, uh, today he's going to be talking to us about how depression uh, the idea of depression has changed over time, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how the current conceptualization of depression has influenced um, uh, uh, mental health care, you know, in, in, the, in the modern era. So, Alan, thank you so much for ag- agreeing to come and have a chat with me about this, and, and, and let's just dive, dive right in. Talk, talk to us about uh, the, the history of depression over time. Right. Well, I would say depression is probably the single mental illness that has been described in remarkably constant ways for thousands of years. And the ancient Greek philosopher Hippocrates uh, spent a considerable amount of time describing depression in ways that are just remarkably like the current definitions of depression. And but unlike current definitions, Hippocrates clearly separated symptoms of um, normal depression, I mean, when people ought to feel sad, um, from depressions without cause, that is, depressions that aren't grounded in some kind of loss that people are experiencing. And it's only those um, depressions that are, in his terms, without cause. And they didn't really necessarily have without any cause, but were either disproportionate to what's happening in the person's actual life. And and you can... um, really see great similarities between the symptoms that hypocrisies described and the current DSM um, definitions of depression. And I mean, throughout history, I mean, there's a um, very famous book by the um, 16th century English, uh, he was actually a vicar, Robert Burton, Anatomy of Melancholia. So he called what uh, depression melancholy, melancholy or melancholy in our pronunciation. Um, and again, what Burton describes as depression is virtually the same as hypocrisies and very similar to current definitions. And so you have this remarkable consistency in definitions across thousands of years. That really only changes when um, Sigmund Freud developed his um, uh, system that became um, tremendously popular towards the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And while Freud probably wouldn't disagree with anything that Hippocrates or Burton talked about, he emphasized anxiety much more than depression. Indeed, for Freud, depression was just a particular form of 
um, of anxiety. So for the period when psychoanalysis was dominant in psychiatry, you know, rough, very roughly the first half or first six decades of the 20th century, much less attention was given to depression than to anxiety. Indeed, you also see really in the 1950s the development of the first you know, very widespread drugs to treat what would then have been called neurotic conditions, and they're called angiolytics. Uh, mm -hmm. That they're not called antidepressants, and they are tremendously popular. Everybody at the they you know, were as well known in the 1950s, 1960s culture as the antidepressants are today. And so, just just to kind of contextual uh, to to say, so there's a couple things I I do remember that in when I was learning about Freud, they don't talk about depression; they talk about neuroses, you know, and it's that that yes. that idea and of anxiety um, is the key yeah. to the neuroses, not mm -hmm. depression. And then, um, you know, when you talk about the 1950s, are you talking about? Uh, I guess the development of meprobamate, you know, mommy's little helper, and maybe Librium uh, ent entering the market, the first benzodiazepine. Right. Okay. Right. And sort of the first sort of drug scandal hits at around that time, really in the early 1970s, you have um, thalidomide, which wasn't um, given for psychiatric conditions, but it caused. Um, really horrible birth defects. It really led the Food and Drug Administration to crack down on um, advertisements for um, the anti-angiolytics um, and um, really made drug companies prove their effectiveness with some particular condition. You couldn't um, do as they had been advertising. I mean, you would see things like children leaving home and the elderly parents, you know, taking these angiolytics because of their situations and just these very general common um, conditions. This no longer was permissible in terms of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration regulations. And then, so what you get is sort of a gap in these, um, medications, the, the anti-anxiety drugs are sort of stigmatized, but there's nothing that has emerged in their place. So then when a whole new class of drugs, which work on the, you know, the serotonin system, is developed in the 1980s, it made a lot more marketing sense to call them antidepressants, because depression didn't have the same kind of negative connotation that the anti-anxiety drugs had garnered. Um, so, to, so to recap, you know, it's like the uh, the anxiolytic medications, the benzodiazepines, they kind of had their heyday from the 50s up to maybe, you know, into the 70s, and then they became stigmatized because people recognized there were a lot of safety, dependence, addiction issues right. with them. And so when the new group of drugs came onto the market, they wanted to kind of separate themselves, say, you know, we're not anti-anxiety meds because we don't want to be associated with that, with those risks. We're antidepressants. Yeah, it, exactly. And yeah. in fact, 
the so-called antidepressants don't have anything more to do with depression in particular than the you know, angiolytics had to do with anxiety in particular. They work across, or don't work, whichever you think, mm -hmm. across very, very broad conditions. So that, you know, as you just said, it was much more a question of marketing than of, you know, how the drugs actually work. I want to, because there's, there's a little, there's a stage before, you know, there's a stage kind of before we get to, I guess, the late 80s when Prozac hits the market where we have a couple of drugs, which are the traditional antidepressants. I'm thinking about drugs like um, imipramine and the monoamine oxidase inhibitors yeah. like um, uh, the MAOI type drugs. And they were used, you know, in depression, but and correct me if I'm wrong, but more so back then, this was used in, I guess, what people used to call melancholic depression or vital yes, depression exactly. or endogenous depression, you know, the kind of words that we use to signify, you know, an organic cause to the to the depression, or at least they did back then. And it's this very, oftentimes a very kind of lethargic, hypersomnolent state um, uh, where there can be a lot of you know, they stop eating, they stop moving a lot, and it's a really, you know, a really almost heading in the direction of catatonia. But um, and so, could you tell us a little bit about about that phase? How how depression transitioned from being this kind of niche thing that maybe was treated in asylums with these MAOIs and tricyclic antidepressants? Like how we got from that small group of you know technically like endogenously, you know depressed or genetically depressed or however you want to say to the group that became a lot broader you know following the you know at the start of the 80s and into the 90s yeah no you're absolutely correct that the you know maois the imipramine um, these were used to treat really serious melancholic depressions i mean they certainly were not suitable for a broad range of the population no pharmaceutical company would see those as appropriate to try and market to a, a, the general population. They're really for more almost psychotic um, conditions mm -hmm. than um, for your run-of-the-mill depressions. So when the new the SSRIs, which hadn't existed before the 1980s, Really are developed, it made the drug companies didn't want to call them anti-anxiety medications, even though they're pretty much replacing um, you know, Miltown or the other you know, benzodiazepines. Um, it just hit on a, a genius marketing thing and certainly helped by Peter Kramer's um, you know, Listening to Prozac, which was an enormously influential book. And he's promoting them, I mean, not just as you know, a relief for any kind of psychic problem, but they make you better than well. And you know, who doesn't want to be better than well? And so Kramer's book had a um, tremendously influential impact on the um, marketing 
of mm. of these at the time new uh, drugs and the other major development was before um, roughly 1988 I might not have the exact date correct that drug companies couldn't advertise to the general public that is they could only advertise within medical journals um, yeah they could have their promotion people visit you know psychiatrists or general physicians in their offices but there were no say television ads um, there was no widespread promotion of these because it was prohibited that changes at the end of the 80s just as the SSRIs are coming onto the market and there's just a barrage of advertisements that are directed at the general public to promote um, these drugs and often even using Kramer's imagery of you know better than well and um, you know uh, certainly bringing a whole new category of drugs to the attention of the general public and they are just hugely successful and they're called <laughs> antidepressants and they're certainly prescribed for depression but among many many other kinds of oh yeah like uh, PTSD generalized anxiety disorder obsessive compulsive disorder right. just to just to name a few and um, I think the other thing that you know just a comment that that happens as well is you know the, the drugs have a much more I guess you would say in a way favorable safety profile you know when we look at the older antidepressants you know with the tricyclic class uh, they were fatal in overdose it's very difficult to overdose on SSRIs so again the safety kind of increases there and then with the um, monoamine oxidase inhibitors you have to avoid cheese and wine and so you know there's these kind of risks of those drugs that sort of ends up being, you know, making people think, oh, you know, we really need to use these in people who are more sick. Um, but when when Peter Kramer comes out with listening to Prozac and he starts talking about cosmetic psychopharmacology, I mean, now now we're not talking about a drug for a serious illness. In many ways, we start talking about almost like a lifestyle job, a, a, a lifestyle drug where you could be yeah. kind of perkier, you could be a little less anxious, a little a little more disinhibited if you wanted that. And hey, you don't have to worry about changing your diet. You know, your doctor doesn't have to worry about prescribing you small, you know, uh, days at a time because he's worried about you overdosing on them as well. And so, and then also there's that marketing piece. Uh, you know, it seems like it, then it really takes off. Okay, so the f first DSM um, mm -hmm. is published in 1952, right when the psychoanalysts are dominant in psych um, psychiatry. The second edition was published in 1968, when there's still this psychoanalytic um, dominance. And both of these manuals reflected really a strong um, analytic perspective and emphasize anxiety as the you know, overwhelmingly powerful condition among the neuroses. Um, depression was a relatively minor part of the DSM-1 and DSM-2. Okay, well, the 
research psychiatrists who were led by uh, Robert Spitzer, who was the editor of the third edition of the DSM-3, really wanted to create a revolution in psychiatric diagnosis, and they did. And their idea was the first two DSMs were really based on an etiological model, that is, what causes the condition that's under study. And they would generally find the causes in sort of unconscious motivations and other you know, analytic kinds of concepts. They wanted to abolish that completely and developed a symptom-based um, manual where they would have a list of very precise symptoms. So there are you know, nine possible symptoms of um, depression. And if you have if, you know, five of the nine, you get the diagnosis of depression. Doesn't matter what the cause yeah. might be. And, and may I add, and I'd, I'd like you to comment on this as well. Um, you know, my understanding of why they, they shifted from a, a causal based. Well, actually, here's my first question. When in the first two DSMs, you know, they had neuroses, which was much more linked to intrapsychic conflict or, you know, you could just say, you know, stress, stressful interpersonal things or, you know, troubles in your life that you couldn't overcome. And that was intrapsychic conflict leading to neuroses. Did they draw a distinction between that kind of uh, neuroses or depression that is more causally related to, you know, stresses in your life and um, endogenous type depressions, which were thought yeah. to come out? Like, did they have those two categories in the first two DSMs? Yeah, well, they did have the category of, you know, sort of endogenous, what we might call endogenous depression. So, yes, yeah. that was there. It was not a common diagnosis, but it was certainly in the manual. Yeah. But the, in terms of ordinary depression, the major goal of the DSM-3, the researchers who were behind implementing the system, was really to destroy anxiety. That is, because anxiety is so tied up with the analytic perspective. So what they did was they make anxiety, they divide into nine distinct conditions. I mean, so there's generalized, there's uh, social and specific phobias, there's obsessive compulsive disorders, there's, there's all these distinct sorts of anxiety conditions. There's just one kind of depressive condition that's not a psychotic condition. And this is you know, defined by its symptoms of you know, being sad or um, you know, having, um, you know, losing your appetite, um, having problems sleeping, just extremely common symptoms of in the population. And what happens is when the um, DSM-3 definitions are applied in epidemiological studies, that is studies of mental illness in the general population as opposed to treated patients, you get huge prevalence of depression. I say, you know, oh my God, depression is by far the most common um, kind of mental illness. Roughly 20% you know, of the entire population 
experiences um, you know, depressive, you know, enough depressive symptoms to meet the five symptom um, criteria. And so all of a sudden depression because of the changes that the DSM-3 made in diagnoses that becomes probably at the center of the mental health um, professions. Yeah, and, yeah, because yeah, the um, it's so easy to diagnose um, at that point. I want to um, share kind of my understanding of um, of kind of why the shift from the um, the causal model to the list model, which I think does provide some kind of context and why the need to move away from psychoanalytic t- terms like neuroses. So my, my understanding was that psychiatry, there was a lot of embarrassment in psychiatry at the time because they were doing studies where several psychiatrists might interview the same patient and that, you know, the at least in DSM-1 and 2, the it, it was so subjective, you know, every psychiatrist could just say, oh, I think this is a neuroses versus I think this is you know, a a depression, because no one could decide, supposedly, whether, you know, this is due to intrapsychic conflict, or maybe this is more biological in nature, like an endogenous one. And so there's, there's this, um, um, you know, this, this push to kind of make, to, to kind of take that thought out of it, you know, we don't want you, we don't want to be making our diagnoses based on, you know, our subjective interpretations, we want to be like, internal medicine doctors diagnosing rheumatic heart disease where we have you know a list of you know symptoms there and that and that's you know much more scientific if we just do the symptoms and then the other thing is uh, psychoanalysis is kind of falling out of favor at that time you know there's this general sense that you know that model has taken us you know to the extent that it can and and maybe some of the interpretations are getting a little bit wacky, you know, some of the things like penis envy and some of the things we all kind of mm-hmm. laugh about now. But there was this, I, I think there was a shift away from, you know, that way of kind of conceptualizing all mental illness as you know, an Oedipus complex or, you know, some kind of, you know, problems within the family. And the, and the model just wasn't working. And so there's also this sense that, you know, to evolve, we need to move away from such a a Freudian-based kind of model of diagnosis. Is, is that your understanding as well? Or maybe you could elaborate and add some things? Oh, absolutely. And pretty much basically after 1980, when the DSM-3 mm-hmm. comes out, uh, psychoanalysis becomes just pretty much a small subculture within psychiatry. That is very, very few psychiatrists go into analysis. It becomes more the province of uh, a subculture of say clinical psychology or social work is actually one of the um, now major bastions of of analysis but so just the whole client the type of person who goes becomes an analyst really is transformed from psychiatry to the other mental health professions although in general it falls out of favor uh, also, in, just in the general culture, it's just not mm-hmm. analysis is no longer a major presence at all. And I think to a large part, that is because of the changes in the DSM-3. Yeah. You know, I, I want to 
I'm, I'm going to pick up on, on a thread that you mentioned previously because I think it's important to maybe get some of this context before we go into the impact of the new DSM criteria and the growth of depression. So uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to something right at the start of when we were talking about it. Um, Hippocrates, how did he differentiate endogenous depressions from reactive depressions and that meaning biological versus ones that are based in life was there some kind of criteria that he used did it look different in some way do we have that level of detail from his early writings that there were you know how he thought about those two being different yeah i think the major criterion that hippocrates used was the term without cause that is Mm. depressions um, that just seem to come out of the blue or just seem you know wildly disproportionate to you know what the person is experiencing in their lives um, are the ones that he would have considered to be true mental illnesses whereas depressions with cause that is you know, somebody dies or um, mm-hmm. it's natural that people would become depressed. It's not a mental illness, even if you have the same symptoms. It really depends on the relationship of the symptoms to what's happening in the person's life. And, and yeah, that basic distinction is continues for thousands of years, right up until 1980 in the, the DSM-3, where it's almost abandoned. The one yeah. exception is the bereavement exclusion. That is that the DSM-3 yeah. does say, well, if you know, the person has suffered a recent loss of a loved one, shows these symptoms, they shouldn't be diagnosed with depression unless it's longstanding by which they define as two months. I mean, you can argue that's not you know, not long enough, or if it has truly um, severe symptoms, um, like yeah, almost I mean, incapacitating symptoms. And it's, it's interesting, you know, that they have that carve out for bereavement. And it's almost in many ways, it's like, I think it, it was a concession to the more psychoanalytically based, you know, members of the group who said, hey, what about if someone dies? And they said, okay, we'll let you have that, even though we don't really want to even though we want to move away from a causal definition because i mean this having a carve out for bereavement it's you know why not have a carve out for catastrophic economic loss following a job loss or from a divorce a particularly brutal divorce perhaps where you lose the children or something like that um you know it's interesting that they carve out bereavement when there's several things that anyone could think of that could be just as significant as losing a loved one. Well, I think you've hit on exactly the important question. And to go back to the DSM-3, there's one influential member, Paula Clayton, who had actually done studies of bereavement. And what she found was that a huge proportion, you know, half of people who had suffered a recent loss of somebody close to them, the death of somebody close to them, would meet the criteria for depression. But if you look, say, three months later, most of those people 
we're starting to get better and by say six months almost you know very few um, would still meet the criteria for depression so i think it was because of clayton's work that the dsm-3 had carved out this exception then, i mean you could make the same kind of point that you know I know the study wasn't done, but maybe people bounce back, you know, three to six months after a job loss, you know, if they're really sad. Yeah, but, well, I mean, actually, um, yeah. my collaborator, Jerry Wakefield, and uh, mm -hmm. a couple of other people, we did a study which was attempting to get at exactly the issue that you raised, which is, well, is bereavement isolated? Is it a special kind of loss? Or what about people who just lost their job? What about people who are getting divorced? That is that there might be a broader category of loss that also should be excluded from the um, depression criteria. That um, you know, was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry and um, uh, upset a lot of people because I mean, depression is the core condition. And if much of what's getting diagnosed as depression is really just a normal response to loss, I mean, that's pretty threatening to psychiatry's core condition. And our <laughs> results suggested that there really wasn't that much difference between bereavement and other kinds of losses. One thing that I want to ask you about is, um, so when when the you know when the when we move from two to three in the DSM and we get rid of cause, you know, we're not interested in cause anymore, except for this like little carve out that we have for bereavement, which by the way doesn't exist anymore in the fifth yeah. DSM, as I'm sure you're aware. You know, they finally got it out, but the the DSM clearly states you know we are a causally you know neutral manual like we don't really care if it's caused biologically or caused in reaction to social uh, to social stresses however even though they say that and that's what's in there that's not how it's used well that's not how it's perceived both by a lot of the times the practitioners psychiatrists and family medicine doctors and by the public and so when you get given a major a major depressive disorder diagnosis, um, a lot of people start thinking that they have um, biological problems. And, and, and I think that's kind of, a, you know, something that I'd really want to get your perspective on because, you know, it's not, the DSM never says that, but that's what the kind of the social contagion tends, st starts being after the DSM-3. That's the... That's how a lot of people start seeing. I don't know if you agree with that. I mean, that's kind of my perspective being a practitioner, and I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, there is actually in all of the DSM since DSM-3, including DSM-5, a, a very short general definition of what it means to have a mental disorder. That is, it's not particular to depression. It could it holds for any condition in the DSM. And basically, to condense it, it means, well, something has gone wrong in the way people are responding to 
um, you know, some mental mechanism, whether it's emotional or cognitive, or you know, that it, it's not working as it's been designed to work by evolution um, in responding to to the world. So that the what the bereavement exception was saying is, well, this isn't anything gone wrong. It's normal for people to respond to you know, the death of a close um, you know, family member you know, with serious depression. I mean, even um, you know, apes and chimpanzees um, respond this way when they're close. So this, this is built into our hardwiring, but it's not a mental disorder. It's the way that humans are designed to be. And the same thing for, you know, undergoing, you know, painful divorce or you know, losing a valued job, that there's you know, many kinds of res lost responses that are absolutely normal and not um, signs of mental disorder. And so that's what we were trying to show empirically, that bereavement was not a singular exception, but an example of a much broader category of um, uh, um, mm -hmm. of loss responses. So this, of course, is enormously threatening to um, the psychiatrists who are developing the well, the, the latest edition, the DSM five, which, as you mentioned, well. It's now the, I guess, the 5TR, but when it was just the plain old 5 came out in 2013, it pretty much abandons the um, bereavement exclusion. It does, it now becomes a footnote that's sort of very ambiguously written, and it's not part of the diagnostic criteria any, any longer. So even bereavement is no longer an excuse for, um, not giving a diagnosis of major depression. And it's interesting because, um, you know, so much of it, I feel like so much of it is in the language that you use uh, because major depressive disorder, you know, when you hear disorder, you think, at least for me, oh, is something malfunctioning, you yeah. know, and um, and I know that's, you know, because I read the DSM, and that's not what they're not trying to say something is malfunctioning biologically, although that's how everyone interprets it. You know, it's just saying, you know, you could, you know, at least they want to say, oh, you could have, I guess what they're trying to say is that you could have um, these symptoms from, you know, social stresses or psychological stresses, and it's still a disorder because it's impairing your ability to function, you know. You could just as well have it coming out of the blue, but that's um, and and so I guess their perspective would be something like, why do we need this carve out for bereavement when, you know, we're not even um, you know, we don't yeah, it's it's who cares? It's a disorder, you know, is what they're saying. But it actually it it matters a lot um, because it matters a lot in how people see their illness, you know, as a, if if they see it as something which is. I'm passive in my recovery. I, I need to take the medication as the doctor has prescribed. And, and that's how I need to recover because I'm disordered in this way. 
as opposed to um, maybe a different word or a different way of putting it where it's where it's more empowering, where it's more like, well, actually, have we looked at your diet? Have we looked at how you um, function in relationships? Have we looked at your ability to exceed, su- succeed economically? Are there things holding you back? I mean, there's this, there's this thing that happens, you know, when you start telling someone that they're sick. Um, and I feel like the kind of the contagion that got out there, or at least the idea that was has, has been pumped out for a long time with, and you could go to talk about, you know, the chemical imbalance uh, hypothesis for mental illness and depression and such was that as soon as they got rid of the terms such as like neuroses, which or bereavement, which were more anchored and causal things going on, um, they started to really promote kind of depression or major depressive disorder solely in biological ways. And and I mean, the one part of me says that that's probably because it was very helpful in selling drugs. You know, is to say, you know, you've got this deficit, and um, now. Um, you know, it's not your fault. And this is medicine, you know, it's like insulin for diabetes type of thing. And so I wonder if, um, I mean, my, my perspective is that, you know, if there is a financial incentive to kind of, um, um, share one version, you know, or, or to promote one idea, you know, depression, biological, serious mental illness, you know, medic, antidepressants are like insulin for diabetes, that that's going to be the, the idea that takes hold, especially if there's a lot of, um, you know, finances and, and, and things kind of going into it. And so, I mean, that was my perspective, I think, going through it and reading back of kind of how this thing that's meant to be neutral, you know, major depressive disorder is just, it's it's just symptoms, it's meant to be neutral, but it changes and it gets seen in a different way by the public. I I don't know if you could kind of comment on that and or or maybe maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to, to get your thoughts on how this thing evolves. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I mean... To my mind, you're entirely right. I mean, I think you, you mm-hmm. have you, you know, summarized the situation exactly. That is, if you call someone sick, and even if the reason they're sick is because they're acting the way we would expect anybody to react to a serious you know, loss of you know, relationships or jobs or you know, the, the death of a, a close family member, um, well, if you're saying they're disordered, well, the natural reaction would be, hey, we have a pill for that. You, know, you should take mm-hmm. you know, antidepressant uh, you know, medication. And it was say, you know, wildly successful. I mean, I think successful beyond what the, you know, the drug companies initially you know, envisioned in the, you know, the late 80s and you know, through the rest of the century until as is pretty much the case now, they lost the patents on on the um, antidepressants. And it doesn't seem as if they've been replaced, however, just because there's nothing really new on the horizon. Well, one thing we could tack on to the end of this and uh, I could talk to you about is the psychedelics. And I think that oh, whole psychedelic, yes. the whole psychedelic oh. model is, is so different from... Um, the take a pill every day model and I think it'll be interesting to see how these two clash because of MDMA which has now you know MAPS has completed their second phase phase three study and they're applying for a new drug application as we speak you know potentially with an approval by the end of the year 
if that comes onto the market, there's a whole new model because the idea is that you have PTSD and um, you know things aren't working out well for you and you go and you see a therapist who's trained in helping you prepare for the session. You know What are the things that you want to change in your life? How are you hoping this is going to help you? They go through this experience on the medication and then they have to integrate the insights from the experience. So it's more drug as a, a vehicle for insights you know it's not something like drug you take every day we do this it's like it, it's putting it back on the person and the, and the therapist to say how are we going to integrate these new experiences and this is going to be such a vital clash i think between the two models and you're going to have some really well financed players who are going to come into the market and start having some very ideas about some some different ideas about how do we want the public to perceive depression that may be beneficial to us and you know and, and what we're doing and, and and so i think the the conversation may change you know as more money kind of flow, flows into this space uh, you know backing a different model and i'm, I'm really eager to see that <laughs> yeah well i'm especially interested to watch these developments because i mean i went to um you know, i was an undergraduate at the, you know, the late 1960s and of course yeah well, I guess ecstasy hadn't quite yet arrived, but psilocybin, um, um, magic mushrooms, LSD, I mean, these were the sort of deviant subcultural drugs that had, you know, I mean, nothing to do with medical practice. I mean, you would never get these from um, a psychiatrist or any kind of physician. I mean, it's a huge, you know, underground market and people would take them for the often very exciting and you know insightful insights you would gain from from tripping. Although they also had a lot of risks because bad trips were you know a, a major possibility. And but just the notion that these would be incorporated in some kind of a medical setting would have just been seen as absurd at that time. And now she's saying, you know, all of a sudden there's this revival of these old, you know, psychedelics as um, medicine promising new, yeah. although yeah. I would question the newness, you know, tools to, um, you know, to, um, to help people. Hmm. And although PTSD might be one um, condition where they, I think you know, might have some special um, value. Oh, well, they're going for depression as well. You know, uh, number two and three through the gates is going to be, I think it's Compass and then Usona uh, pursuing psilocybin for major uh, oh, treatment yeah. resistant depression and then uh, Usona just for normal depression. And But I think those ones are a few years behind. You know, we may need to wait until 2025 to see if they, yeah. they kind of come, they come through. Another, you know, a question I don't want to get away from which um, you know, because you've read so much of the literature about um, old forms of depression and such. You know, when people hear the word depression nowadays, they, they kind of think about, um, I guess, what everyone thinks about with depression, you know, low mood, feeling guilty, restless, you know, uh, mm -hmm. low motivation, you know, a lot of uh, self-critical thoughts and things like that. That's really what most people think of with depression. But could you describe how 
endogenous depression was you know because that was how people used to use that word you know they talk about depression and they talk about someone who had endogenous depression i was wondering if you could talk about you know when you know how has that been described in the literature in the past you know the the, the depression of the 50s kind of before it all changed because i think that's interesting to kind of contrast as well is that the that these two things were very, you know, were mm -hmm. pretty different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, endogenous depression would be, I think, just a much more serious form that often shows, say, instead of just, you know, just kind of feeling down in the dumps or feeling sad, you're almost, you know, vegetative. That is, you just can't, you might mm. just stay in your house, stay in bed, you know, all day. It's just a, a much more severe sort of condition. And mm -hmm. in certain ways would be comparable to depression because it does have the same symptoms or similar symptoms, but it's just a far more severe kind of, of condition, often accompanied by suicidal uh, thoughts um, or suicidal actions um, and so on the one hand it's just a matter of severity but at a certain point becomes you know, so severe it almost becomes a different kind of condition mm -hmm. and I've and I've I've seen these folks uh, during my residency and it at least at the very severe side of it, the neurovegetative side is, um, it can be quite shocking. Sometimes, you know, they're just in bed, you know, hardly able to talk, you know, and sometimes with psychotic symptoms, and then they require ECT or some other kind of fairly heavy intervention in order to get out of it. Um, and um, I'm trying to think. Is there, I think there's an author called, is it William Styron or something? Uh, some, oh, yes. Someone like, yeah. yeah, Darkness, yeah. Um, um, oh, um, yeah, yeah, no. I, 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 there's two words and darkness is one of them. Um, because yeah. you know, to, to, to me, that, that seems like more of this endogenous depression, you know, when oh, you read absolutely. his book, I mean, it's just this wave that comes over him, you know, and just completely depletes him and tortures his mind you know and um i think about you know that constellation of symptoms of something seemingly coming out of nowhere in a cyclical way you know knocking someone over and then just putting them in the deepest despair ever um and then it's so different from um i guess how everyone thinks of depression these days and, and and so like the market or the idea of it has gone from being something that little to being something so big now yeah. um <laughs> yeah i think now when you read about depression it's as of just a very com it's almost always coupled with anxiety which sort of goes back to the way it used to be described but you know that you have just huge numbers of, of especially young people being depressed and anxious, often tied to the use of social media, um, also often tied to the effects of the you know, isolation during the COVID um, you know, pandemic. And so depression 
now you know, has to a certain extent shed its uh, association with mental illness and is now just seen as a widely prevalent condition, especially among um, you know, adolescents and young, you know, um, young adults. And so as a, as a sociologist, what is the impact of that? What do you, what do you think about what's kind of um, happened? Um, what, what impact has that had on, on the United States and maybe, maybe the world? Well, I think probably the, I mean, it certainly brought mental health into a you know, much more prominence than um, it's been for a long time, whether that's a good thing, I'm not sure, because you know, defining so the impact of social problems by their mental health effects as opposed to their you know, societal kinds of impacts, it's, you know, it's hard to say what people are gaining by uh, saying, oh, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. Um, but uh, on the other hand, it's yeah, yeah. I think it's good that depression and anxiety have somewhat yeah lost their stigma um, that they were you know, once highly associated with. It's a good so point I think that good you know, and there's bad aspects. Yeah, this. there's there's two parts of it because you're right. You know, I mean, and I see the change even in my lifetime. You know, when I was growing up, no one talked about mental illness at all. Mm -hmm. No one talked about medications. It was something that you just would not mention. You know, this is me in high school. And now I think about how it's all over social media. Everyone's talking about it. You know, you know what antidepressants certain celebrities take. And so just this comfort in kind of talking about it has grown. And, and that impact certainly could you know, let's say someone is suicidal and they're feeling like a failure and they're feeling like, you know, it is a weak thing to do to kind of talk about that, you know, with this kind of general like acceptance of it and the openness about it, they may be more likely to, um, to seek help. But then on the other side is, you know, now we have a system that is so quick to medicate people. And, um, you know, many of these things, um, resolve spontaneously and you know the problem with um, dependence on antidepressants has has really grown you know where it's like you could have someone who has a temporary problem become essentially on a drug for a long time because they, they, they can be very difficult to stop for a proportion yeah. of people and um, and so what's what's the net gain is it net positive or net negative you know it's 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 difficult to know. I mean, I work with people who are drug injured every day. So, I mean, my perspective is generally one where it is a more negative thing. Um, but it's, you know, there's two sides of it for sure. Yeah. 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 And it, it also depends a lot on the particular person that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so one thing I wanted to ask you a little bit about is, you know, you've so much of your work has been about well, I guess, um, you know, f fighting for things like the bereavement clause and things like that um, and getting the, um, you know, keeping some of that, that causal reasoning in uh, psychiatric diagnoses. 
What has it been like on the other side of that? You know, when you're when you're advocating for these things, what are the things that that you used to get uh, you know pushed back on? You know, what was it like interacting with your other you know uh, academic colleagues and the different people that were involved in the DSM? What was that um, that jostle like uh, for you? Yeah. Well. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sociologist. I'm not a clinician. So it was sort of easy for me to be saying these things because you know, um, the people that I'm basically arguing against, I mean, sort of traditional you know, psychiatric thinkers, um, are not sort of my own peers. I mean, so that in a sense, it's easy for me to be a critic because I don't have to um, you know, come in contact, you know, face-to-face -face contact with these mm -hmm. people. I can um, sort of critique from afar. Although I have, I guess I have used to give some talks at, you know, American Psychiatric Association meetings and actually found quite a, a welcoming reception uh, there. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, I guess the next thing is, um, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Alan Francis yes. and um, his kind of about turn after the DSM-4. Um, what was that like for you to see, you know, someone who was so integral kind of, uh, you know, after doing something like the DSM-4, kind of really aligning in many mm -hmm. ways with, you know, with, with your ideas and kind of you know the the awareness of uh, overdiagnosis and how the the manual was getting was being used in unintended ways. What what was that like to kind of see that? Oh, I I thought yeah. it was terrific. I'm a, yeah. a huge fan of um, you know Alan Francis, and I think he wrote a back cover blurb for my last book. And yeah. um, you know I think he 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 saw the light. Um, yeah. I guess now he's, I mean, he's very active on Twitter. I get every day. Um, he's I great. Yeah. He's kind of like a wrecking ball. I, I really admire him. You know, I, I love the things that he says. So uh, I, I did have yeah. the opportunity to speak with him not so long ago, you know, just, just like we're, we're doing now because uh, yeah. he is someone I admire. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I would also mention that uh, Bob Spitzer, who was, of course, the mastermind of the DSM-3, um, wrote a foreword to you know, the loss of sadness that I wrote with uh, Jerry Wakefield, in which he basically repudiated what he had done in DSM three and says, "Hey, these guys are right." Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I I need to have a look at that again. I, I it's been a while since I read it, but um, I think we're you know this is a, probably a good time to wrap. I I really want to thank you for. Uh, you know, letting me talk to you about this and, you know, being able to learn from your expertise on, on the on the history of depression. I I loved your book. It's The Loss of Sadness. It's It's been out for a while now, but it's still worth buying if you're interested. And um, and uh, is anything else you want to add before we wrap? Oh, I, I would just say, you know, I love, you know, exploring your website and you're doing yeah. you know, ter terrific work and, um, you know, just wish you all the best. Great. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry 
on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.